This is the Education Gadfly Show. Have you watched Virginia over the years? They continue to disappoint and they choke all the time, but... What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You hear the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me welcoming our two very special guests for this week, the Loyola and Syracuse of Education Reform, Jessica Shopoff and Chase Eskelson, both from K12.com. Thank you so much. We're glad to be here. Hello. Thanks for having us. All right. Welcome to the show, Jessica and Chase. I I, I make the reference to Marsh Madness because, of course, you know, Syracuse mm-hmm. and Loyola are two number 11 seeds. They're, they're the Cinderella teams that made it into the Sweet 16 among a very crazy Sweet 16. If uh, you and, say so, Mike. And, and Jessica and Chase are like the, the Cinderella's of the Wonkathon. They are the winners of the 2018 Fordham Wonkathon. Thank you. Congrats, you guys. Yes. And by the yes. way, that is Alyssa Schwank from Woo-hoo. Fordham. Yeah, no. And uh, that was a lot of basketball that you just threw at me, Mike. And I totally understand everything you said. It might have been a little, a little, a little <laughs> bit obscure, but but not too much. Look, this was our biggest Wonkathon ever. Yes. We've been doing this for several years now, our annual Wonkathon. And this year we talked about high school graduation requirements in light of some of the mm-hmm. scandals we've seen Washington, D.C., Prince George's County, the credit recovery scandals we've seen around the country, mm-hmm. this worry that we're just handing out diplomas left and right, whether kids uh, are uh, deserving of them or not. And so the question was, what should kids have to do to get a high school diploma? And do we need to rethink our high school? And turns out a lot of people had a lot of opinions about that. They did. And Jessica and Chase had the strongest opinions, according to the folks who voted And their answer is basically, yes, we do need to Mm reimagine our high schools. And so let's hear about it from Jessica and Chase in Ed Reform Update. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Jessica and Chase, let's start. Tell us a little bit about your post and the arguments in there about reimagining the high school. We really liked this Wonkathon topic, and we feel like it's very applicable given kind of everything that's going on. And so we really wanted to focus on, you know, what changes we would make. And when we started talking about the changes, we realized that they really were focused on reimagining the entire system. And so if we know that what we're doing isn't guiding us to where we want to be, which is with people graduating as productive citizens going into careers and college and and making success, then we need to change how we measure it. But we also need to change what we do. And so we talked about making sure we're measuring what matters, not just that four-year cohort graduation rate. Did we get them across the stage in four years? But after they graduate, are they moving towards success? Are they, you know, successful in employment or career college programs? Are they Um, successful as far as income, things that we actually want to see as the kind of final result is where we started. And then we said, okay, so how do we get kids there? And what does that look like? And how is that different from what we currently do? And we really focused on personalized learning and, and really taking personalized learning down to each student, but also then how we measure that and how we change the system itself to ensure that as students are moving through school, that they are learning competencies and things that we think are important, but that we really are focused on making sure that it's impactful to the student and the student gets to where it is they need to go. And so really focusing on that cross-curricular competency-based learning, focusing on personalized graduation paths of where the student wants to go 
And then making sure that that is something that we align across the entire continuum of learning from preschool up through that higher ed, through the career in tech, and on to um, the future of the student. All right. So let, let, let's unpack that a little bit. I mean, you are, first of all, saying that we want kids to be able to go at their own pace is one part. But you say in your piece, for example, that, you know, hitting all the things on the high school checklist, it might take some kids three years. It could take other kids seven years, right? That, that we should be open to having differences in time. Uh, let's also talk about these competencies. I mean, would you, at the end of the day, make kids have to pass some tests to demonstrate that they have these competencies and are ready for what's next? Who, who would get to decide that the kid is ready to go on to college or ready to go on to a, a career uh, training program? That's a great question, Mike. And we actually wrote a secondary piece that kind of builds out some of this information. Uh, it takes a, a closer look at measuring the success of students and it really is a hand-in-hand piece with our Wonkathon entry. I think you have to still have the state test, if that's what you're referencing, and, and say, okay, that's a piece of this story, but that's not the only portion of the story. Kind of what we're looking at is instead of having a transcript that looks at all the different courses with a pass-fail, why don't we reimagine what that even looks like? What if we had a piece of paper that had all of the standards that are required for each student? Mm-hmm. And instead of assigning each one of those standards to a specific course, let's let the kid figure out, okay, what is most applicable to this student and what is going to really get this kid fired up to do their best and to learn the topic and to learn the standard and ultimately to pass high school. Mm -hmm. Okay. So instead of a bunch of course requirements, you would have a, a set of standards. For example, you'd say, okay, they have to demonstrate that they know how to write well. They need to be able to read at this level, uh, demonstrate these uh, ability to make sense of data and analyze it, maybe something around civics and citizenship. Is that is that the sense? And 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 pull that out of well, they have to pass algebra two, and they have to pass English two, and they have to pass mm-hmm. you know a, citizen, a civics course. Right. I mean, if you look at a student who is really into automobiles, and they say, "This is my passion. This is what wakes me up every morning. This is what drives me." That kid can then take all of the different aspects of okay, I need to learn how to write. I need to learn how to do whatever the standard might be. I'm going to write a paper about how certain tires uh, are affected by different types of pavement, which can translate into a lot of different things. And this is really where a CTE focus would come in because they can start planning for their future careers and doing research projects Mm -hmm. and learning about what they care about and getting the standards checked off. And it doesn't have to be signed off necessarily by an English teacher. Why couldn't it be someone in the CTE program that said, okay, they did a research paper they met all the requirements as outlined. Mm-hmm. Sign my name off on that line item. Mm-hmm. What do you guys see as the role of adults as gatekeepers, given that it would, wouldn't be a system where, for instance, like everything is in one standard high school and every kid is going to a physical, the same physical location every single day. Uh, some of these options might be internships or apprenticeships, or they might be an online option. Like, How do we shepherd kids along this like new and exciting path? I think that's a great question. And I think that we really have to, in reimagining exactly what it looks like to educate a child from that entire continuum, I think it does change um, some of how we imagine the traditional high school being as far as the specific role of uh, teachers, of guidance counselors and the like. But I think that you can allow a very, um, there's still a framework. We're not saying let's throw everything out and let's just let every kid do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. I think there's still a framework upon which a a student can say, this is kind of my 
graduation plan. Here's what I know I have to do, things I have to accomplish. And then I think that the adults in the system then are responsible for ensuring that this, the child does those things, but in a way that is meaningful to getting the student where they want to go and, and building upon their interests. So I still think that there's um, a lot of need for real uh, career counseling as students grow up. What are my options? What do, what do I have to know to get to this career I'm interested in? Allowing students to do internships and really get involved in um, that career field and find out if that's what they want to do as early as possible so that the conversations are happening frequently and that the, the adults in the system are still um, guiding that that student along mm-hmm. and making sure that they do everything needed, but that it's a, it's just at a much more personalized level for each student. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the tensions that came up, certainly in your post, but throughout the Wonkathon, they're, they're still there. I mean, one question is, should the people in the high schools, the adults in the high schools, as, as Alyssa said, are they the ones that get to decide if a child has met the requirements mm-hmm. for graduation? Uh, they certainly know the kids best. The challenge, though, is that then they're, if, if they're under pressure to boost graduation rates, mm-hmm. you know, there's these perverse incentives for them to, to, to pass kids who aren't actually ready. Uh, you know, whereas if you have an external standard like you do on an AP assessment, mm-hmm. for example, an AP exam, you know, then the teacher is, all, is more like a coach. It's how are we going to help you meet this challenge of passing this external test? And, uh, and then you've got that external validity that they've really... Uh, accomplish what they need to accomplish. Uh, but then you're back down to testing again. The other big question is, you know, th- this thing about college versus career or mm-hmm. college and career. You know, I know there's a lot of tension. A lot of education reformers just can't get themselves to the point where they would say, hey, it's okay for some kids to go on a more career technical path, say for what's now 11th and 12th grade, and other kids to be moving more towards a traditional college prep path because it feels like tracking, because we don't like tracking, because we were worried about tracking, all that kind of stuff. But that tension still seems there, because at some point you got to say, do we need everybody marching through the same, you know, courses and the same standards, or can we allow for there to be real differentiation? And I think be realistic about what has and has not worked as we've created this system over the last 10, 12 years. I think we've started with a reckoning about that, and I think what's been happening nationally in terms of graduation rates has helped us along that path. But I think we still have to have this kind of honest conversation about what we do and do not want out of that high school experience so we can have that conversation. All right. Well, Jessica, Chase, thank you so much for your fantastic post. Again, people should check it out. It is called High School Reimagined, and we truly mean reimagined part of our 2018 Wonkathon. Uh, So again, Jessica Shopoff, Chase Eskelson from K12.com. Thanks for coming. I hope you guys both come back. Congrats, you guys. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. All right, now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So, Amber, I'd like to ask you a pointed question here. How, how is it as a University womp, of Virginia womp. alum, you did not have them going all the way? Have you did watched not have them going Virg- anywhere? Have you watched Virginia over the years? They continue to disappoint and they choke all the time. But wow. yet I do love my Wahoo status, but I just I just couldn't do it. I they, just my brain uh, overruled my heart. Well, you you made a good you made a good choice there, boy, but they did set some history. Yeah. First oh, number one seed to so lose to a number 16. I'm just saying, I had a 16 going through and I had 
it was um, not uh, UMBC, and I had Virginia winning. Yeah. So yeah. I well, done. you are not alone. Half the no. office had Virginia winning, and my husband gave me massive grief for not yeah. having it the same way. Yeah. But I'm like, I will show you, dear darling. And, and <laughs> he did put him first, and he is so upset. So yeah. anyway, yeah. Yeah, I, I told will... you so. It's the foundation of a good marriage, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> I told you so, yes. Uh-huh. And hey, UMBC, you know, uh, uh, getting a lot of good press, as they deserve, for being a fantastic school and mm-hmm. doing a lot of great stuff yes, for, for uh, students is... of color. Right. And what a cool uh, mascot, too. They're the Chesapeake Bay Retrievers, which is the kind of dog breed that my son, Nico, wants us to get nice. in part because of UNBC. Aww. And in part because it's like local. But yeah, they're, they're kind of the kind of dogs you kind of need to have a farm. Uh, oh, a farm. Ah, okay. or, or they sound else. like herding dogs. Uh, no, or they're, retrieving they're, dogs. They're, exactly, Whatever. They're ducks. Dogs. Yeah. Yes. Dogs. All right. Yes. Well, anyway, yes. It was a depressing game. I, I, I take no solace in the fact that I did not put them first. But yeah. Yeah, anyway, mm-hmm. it is what it is, people. My favorite mm-hmm. part of March Madness is the post-game analyses where people explain to me how, of course, Virginia was going to lose. <laughs> I wish you'd put this. I read before I fill out my bracket. I yeah. wish this did you ask me, Alyssa? I don't think that you did. Mm. I did not. I would no, have I told you. Like reading all of the like sports and blogs. I was on the Ringer. I was on everything mm. Brandon tells me to read. Ah, I see. Good. Nope. All right, Amber. Well, well. Speaking of reading up uh, <laughs> on you know data heavy reports, <laughs> what, what do you got for us this week? We have a new report out from Stanford. This is Tom D and some other analysts, and they are looking at whether race and gender biases exist in fully online learning courses hmm. in post-secondary settings. So this is kind of new. Um, They were looking at both the uh, relationships between students and instructors and between the students and their peers. Mm -hmm. They give you a little context. In 2013, about a quarter of all post-secondary students took some or all of their courses online. And then in K-12 education, we got about uh, 300,000 students attending online schools. As many as 5 million students in K-12 have taken at least one online course. Mm -hmm. So this is a big, big growing area. And they make the point that we've studied a lot about bias with race and gender in other studies, but we've actually never done it in virtual classrooms. Hmm. So it's kind of a neat little (laughs) little slice they're looking at. So uh, they conduct a large-scale randomized experiment. Within the context of 124 massive open online courses or MOOCs that started between August and December of 2014. Okay. All MOOCs were five or more weeks. They were for adults. They had a discussion forum and they were taught, each one was taught by a unique instructor. The MOOCs covered a range of subjects, including accounting, calculus, teaching, epidemiology, computer programming, you name it. It was just everything, mm-hmm. different subjects. The vast majority, 94%, were offered by four year not for profit institutions. Okay. In the U.S. Okay. Uh, analysts posted, con- this is like really neat and experiment. Analysts posted comments in the discussion forums using randomly assigned racial and gender connoting names linked to student profiles that they had created. Specifically, they use Anglo-American, African-American, Indian, and Chinese names that had been used in other studies about race and gender perceptions. And each of their eight race-gender profiles placed one randomly assigned comment from a predetermined list of 32 comments. This is a lot of thinking in this, which were randomly sequenced relative to the progress of the course. So some were well, some were posted at the beginning, the middle, the end. Okay. Wait, these were fake comments. These were fake profiles they created. Okay, with okay. fake with comments. Fake co- well, but they came up with 32 broad comments okay. that could be right. posted. Okay. The comments were could apply to any subject. Okay? okay, they had to do with praise for the instructor. What a great instructor this is. Something like that. Mm. Okay, questions about studying, due dates. Hey, anybody know when this paper's due? Kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, other students, hey, where are you from? Uh, and issues of course difficulty, like, man, this course is really easier than I thought it would be. 
So things mm-hmm. like that. Okay. So okay. sort of like bland sort of questions that you could answer no matter what course you were taking. Okay. Within each course, eight student accounts were created to place one comment each. All right. So that's all the discussion of what the experiment is. Findings. Instructors replied to 7% of the comments, which I thought was, is that low? Is that high? It feels low. low. Massive open. These hundreds of 7% students. of the 32 comments or 7% of 7% all comments? 7% of their comments okay. that they posted. Right. Yeah. And at least one student responded to nearly 70% of their comments. So that makes okay. more sense. That's more kids. Uh, an average of 3.2 student replies to each of their comments. Yet the variance in the replies by students was all over the map. It was anywhere between zero and 213 replies mm-hmm. to each of the comments huh. uh, posted. 58% instantly of the courses were taught by white males. Next, instructors in general were more likely to respond to forum posts by white males. Mm. Specifically, a comment from a white male is 5.8 percentage points more likely to receive a response from an instructor than a non-white male. Mm. After that, the numbers kind of fall much further behind. But next are Chinese females, more likely mm. to get the response after the white males, and then black females after that. Mm. Um, however, they do not find general evidence of bias for white males or anyone else in the student responses. So they were no mm. more likely to respond based on these identity things they'd come up with. Um, however, looking at subgroups, they find that white females are more likely to receive a response from another white female peer. Specifically, white women were over 10 percentage points more likely to respond to a post by another white woman. So anyway, like that's what the findings were. There was some discussion at the end, like what does this mean for virtual yeah. courses? Mm-hmm. Does it mean that we should all not have an identity? And that didn't mm-hmm. seem to make a lot of sense. How do you really feel like you get to know people when they're just no, no identity? Or they said maybe a better idea is to come up with guidelines for how you might mm-hmm. equitably respond to yeah. all students. Well, I mean, wouldn't the larger issue be whether or not the work that is being turned in is being graded in an equitable fashion, like our white well, males. Right. They're not looking at right. that. Right. Like, to me, that's no, the bigger that's question. Like, do question. they get a yeah. 5% higher score? I mean, it doesn't test. seem like it would be that hard to have, uh, you know, to have people have some kind of identity that that is uh, confidential. I mean, you see this on video games all the time. You know, right. kids are taught, do not use, I guess you do. <laughs> Sorry, I have boys. Uh, yes. And we, you know, everybody knows, or they should, that you don't use your real name uh, when you're playing video games right. On the internet with other people. Right. Uh, well, I'll, right? give a, I'll give a little side example. My husband plays um, uh, Texas Hold'em. Thank you. Across yeah. the whole world. Yep. Uh, and his identity is a 32-year-old white female. So, And he feels yeah. like he gets better hands and whatnot. When he, and I'm like, are you kidding me? That's cheating. And but he anyway, chose that? I digress. Cho- did he yes. get to choose that? Yeah. Yes. No, I mean, I think there is something. Anyways, that, that, that is one of the things that could be done in online settings. It doesn't happen in the real world is that right. you could avoid this kind of bias. Um, right. I mean, maybe the did did they speculate? Is this mean that there is actually less bias in online courses than there would be in face to face courses? Uh, they do not speculate, mm-hmm. um, and it's hard to kind of draw that distinction, right? Because here you don't get any of that sort of, mm-hmm. you know, that's what they're saying. They would expect it to have been lower, actually, since you don't get any of that face to face stuff that might give you some preconceived notion. Yeah, um, but yeah. They they didn't they didn't I mean, look I'm at curious so about that. I mean I I would love to know if especially if students of color feel like mm-hmm. they get uh you know they face less bias when they're on learning online than when they're sitting mm-hmm. in a classroom yeah I mean though then we get into all of the big naughtier questions about uh, online learning which is student support and scaffolding and who's ready and who isn't which yeah. mm-hmm. it's tricky it's really tricky all right yeah. well very good well thank you Amber very interesting, interesting stuff yeah I thought so all yeah. right and most importantly. 
go blue. There we said it. Sure. Uh-huh. Villanova, baby. All right. That is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm Melissa Schwing. And I'm Mike Curley of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.